0: Crazy Faith Talk. I'm
1: Erica. I'm Steve. And I'm
2: Sarah. And we are now in our
0: fourth episode, we think,
2: uh, of our series on the book of Esther. Um, And in in case you have missed or it's been a while and you haven't listened, let's let's, uh, cover that in the background. We've been set in in the time when the people of Israel are ruled by the Persian Empire. The king of the day is Xerxes. And a... Uh, queen uh, of his is named Esther. She is Jewish, but is secretly Jewish. Nobody knows it. Uh, her cousin is Mordecai. And uh, there's a wicked villain, Haman, who's been plotting things in the last chapter. I think that catches us up to speed. Where are we going from here?
1: Yeah, so if the last chapter was the episode where the villains all gathered together and set the plots into motion to do complete and utter genocide against the Jews. This chapter is going to be about the heroes of the day. Reacting to those news. So we start off um, chapter four with Mordecai. He hears about the edict and he immediately does what people in this time period would do when they are mourning. He is weeping loudly, he is tearing his clothes, he's even pouring ash on himself. And this is both a way to grieve and as a way to show. That lament and that repentance and humility before God um, to, you know, if there is something that we did as a people to incur this wrath, please forgive us. Um, if, if we haven't done anything wrong, please turn your face back to us and save us because we are in trouble. And Mordecai, being from the capital city, he's apparently heard this news early on, and we were told that as the news spread, all of the other Jews also did likewise of you know, cutting their hair, putting on sackcloth, weeping loudly, doing similar things.
2: So um, Mordecai's response, it seems like it is in one sense aimed toward God, the way that in, in the in the ancient mind Lament and repentance both are sort of, I, I take on these symbols, these, these symbolic gestures of mortification to say, God, please, please help. Mm-hmm. But it seems there's also a public dimension that is intended in getting other people's attention, maybe in particular getting the attention of uh, the, those in power. Because he's, he's doing all these things at the king's gate, and this seems to be, in, in a lot of ways, a protest. As, mu- as much as it is also crying out to God, why is this terrible thing happening? it is also protest, please don't, King! Okay, please don't let this terrible thing happen.
1: Right, as well as it's a nice visual to your neighbors of, like, hey, don't forget, I'm also one of the Jews. Yes, I might be slightly different from you, but, like, you know me, we're in relationship, we, you know, I give you two dozen eggs every two weeks in exchange for some flour right. or whatever. Like, we know each other, we live together. I'm one of the people that this edict says is going to die. I think
2: that's a really important point. That it's, it, in, in a sense, this is Mordecai making sure that people see the face of this. That it is mm-hmm. so much easier to allow terrible things to happen to others as long as it's a faceless them. Well, that doesn't affect me or the nobody I know. They must be bad. And that's exactly the selling point that Haman used in his plot. Right? We talked last time yeah. when Haman convinces the king to let him murder all the Jews, it's these are dangerous people. They're subversive. They're not like us, and they don't observe our ways, and that means they won't observe your laws, O King. They're a threat to your reputation and your greatness, so they must be dangerous. But Mordecai's act forces people around him to see, oh, this is Mor- he's an upstanding guy, and we re- we recall way 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 back earlier in the story, Mordecai was a celebrated hero. He had foiled the plot to kill uh, the-, the king, and so Mordecai,
1: but he wasn't celebrated.
2: Wait, right, wait. Right. but I mean, like, at, at least at that point, the king knew, and we know reading the story.
1: Yeah, but I don't
2: think anybody else knows. They, 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 he hasn't gotten this big public vindication. Yeah, yet, but, yeah. that's true. But, like, the we who know the story, like, this is like, Mordecai, like, there's a face to this. I'm a good, decent guy. You know I'm an upstanding, good, decent person. Please don't let this happen mm-hmm. to me and to my, my people. Um, and maybe this is part of how Mordecai resists the way Haman wants to characterize all Jewish people, uh, they're all dangerous because they won't obey the king's orders. When really what he kicked this off was Mordecai won't give his allegiance to he won't. He won't worship him like an idol.
1: So Esther has not heard of the edict mm-hmm. because eventually word comes back to her from her servants that Mordecai is doing all of these things. And they seem to be unaware of the relationship between them because nobody knows that Esther is Jewish. But they do seem to think that she would be concerned about his welfare. Mm-hmm. which uh, So they want to let her know so she can do something about it, which both seems to be a point in Queen Esther's favor that she's on good enough terms with her staff that they feel like they can come to her and say, Hey, so-and-so is in trouble, or something's going on with so-and-so, we think that you would be you you should be aware, and that you would care, Mm -hmm. and um, also that she's on good enough, like, her staff seem to know her, and like love her Mm -hmm. and so Esther sends some clothes to Mordecai to like be like, I don't know why you're wearing sackcloth but (laughs) here's some nice fancy clothes, like, here you go and he sends them back, and she's like Something must seriously be wrong. So she sends a personal servant to go and talk to him. And that is because as Mordecai, wearing sackcloth, can't go past the king's gate. And Esther, as the queen, as the king's wife, can't leave the harem, the place where the women are kept. So they can't actually talk to each other. So they're going to do it through Esther's servants. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm and in a way like th- this, this I think highlights the, the agency and the, the strength to, the, to, to Esther like, there's, a, there's, a, there's a proactiveness in what's going on here that as much as Mordecai will have kind of an advisor older relative kind of a role for her she clearly is clued in. something's going on and doesn't just let this drop she doesn't go like well Mordecai's not going to tell me or Mordecai who sends back the clothes who cares I'm moving on to something. and she also doesn't let herself off the hook with, well, things are fine in my little world, in my palace. I'm sure things are fine elsewhere, but no, things are terrible here. Um, this, this whole scene reminds me of, the, especially the publicness of what Mordecai does, reminds me of the story of what, what Emmett Till's mother did oh, uh, when, when Emmett Till was murdered, uh, lynched um, uh, back a, a generation or so ago and that when he was murdered and brutally tortured by people who killed him because uh, he had spoke, dare speak, to a white woman, um, uh, Emmett Till's mother insisted that the casket be opened uh, when, the, when the, pre- the funeral procession happened um, and did so intentionally so that people would have to come face to face with what had been done to him. And it wasn't so much a, a call for revenge against the people who had killed him, although those people never got justice, um, uh it was meant to be a wake-up call so that future people would not die this way. Um, and it, it seems like that's very much what Mordecai is doing with his chosen tactic here. It, it, again, like we've talked before how in this book, God isn't specifically mentioned. And it may well be that part of Mordecai's thinking is, I'm trying to get God's attention. But in good, solid Jewish theology, it isn't you have to yell louder to get God's attention. But sometimes you gotta get, yell out and get other people's attention. Um, and that his intentional choice here is like Emmett Till's mother's. Like, this is a face and you all need to see it. You, you, I won't let this terrible thing happen and people look the other way or not think that these are real people this is happening to. Or that it's so terrible, that can't really be happening. And so often that's the way it goes. is People decide, well, this terrible thing, what I've heard in the room is that can't really be happening. Therefore, I ignore it. Or it's happening to other people who either I don't know or must have deserved it, and therefore the bad things are happening. And Mordecai doesn't mind being the squeaky wheel. And he doesn't mind, I'm sure, becoming um, targeted as a troublemaker for all that he's doing, too. I think that's an important piece of this story um, that we, we have to face, that Mordecai knows his role. He doesn't have any power, really, but he can be noisy and try to get people's attention that can uh, save more of his people.
0: And I wonder if that's why he's outside the palace gate. It's, yeah. it's not, yes, to get the king's attention in some sense, but also because he can't get to Esther directly. Mm-hmm. Um, because he can't enter the palace gate. She can't come out and see him. But he, if he stays there long enough, maybe her servants will come out. Mm-hmm. And so he can reach her that way. Because after the, it's back and forth between her servants and Mordecai and um, you know, he, he delivers the edict to her for her to read over and see exactly what's going on. Because, I mean, she's in the harem. She doesn't know what the right, king's doing. Right, right. She has no clue that her people herself, if she's right. found out, are in danger. And he knows that she's the only possible person that he has contact with mm-hmm. that might change the king's mind. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, okay, so there, it seems like there's a lot of strategy to what Mordecai does. To get public attention on this, to get the king's attention maybe, and to specifically get Esther's attention. And eventually we get to a point where Esther sends through couriers, messengers, to say, Mordecai, what's the deal? What's going on here? And she she learns of the plan, and um, Mordecai has a response back to Esther that's probably the most well-known part of this story, that if you've ever heard a sermon on Esther, it's probably on this, this central
0: passage, right? Yes, um, and I'm not finding the the exact verse, but it goes something like, um, "You were appointed for such a time as this."
2: Right. So it it comes in like in the the passage, going like verses 10 through 17 in chapter 4, where Esther, like Esther, gets that Mordecai wants her to talk to the king, and Esther says, "Well, wait a second, here, Mordecai. Don't you remember? If you go to the king and you haven't been summoned, you can be." you know, deposed, you could be out, and, and that's sort of why we got that whole story about Vashti at the very beginning, like, this is a king who is so, like, capricious, he makes crazy decisions on a whim, um, and even got rid of his first wife, because she wouldn't come when, uh, she was summoned, that Esther realizes, you know, if I catch him on the wrong day, or his advisors tell him it's a bad thing for a woman to come when she's not summoned, or whatever, she could get deposed, and, then she'd be thrown out of the street and lose her life all that kind of thing. So she's like, the stakes are high for me here, Mordecai. And then Mordecai's response, yeah, exactly like you said, it's that is that line uh, from verse 13 and 14. Don't think that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews, for if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your fathers family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to real dignity for just such a time as this
1: know that that one line is what we all turn to but I think it's the line before that I want to pay attention to today which is you know for if you stay silent at such a time as this relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another Mm quarter. that Mordecai seems fairly confident at this moment that God is going to act that there is going to be deliverance but that if Esther doesn't speak, doesn't help in that deliverance, she and her family may still die, that there will still be casualties. Mm-hmm. But that Esther is positioned to help yeah. in God's deliverance, but that God is still going to do something. There's something I love the
2: tension of those the two poles of what he says. On the one hand there's a deep confidence Help's going to come one way or another, and again, it seems the unspoken thing is that God is behind it. God is going to find a way to save in the end. But, who knows but that you've been placed in that sort of delightful passive voice, you know, maybe God's the one who put you in this situation so that you can be the one through whom God works. To me, I'm going to ask for a quick Lutheran detour. Um... in in the back of my mind are Luther's words in his catechism when he talks about when we pray in the Lord's prayer your kingdom come your will be done and Luther has this recurring habit in the catechism of saying look our praying doesn't make God's will happen and it's not that if I don't pray hard enough God's kingdom won't come or God's will won't be done but we pray that God will work through us rather than having to work in spite of us Mm. Um, and that that idea seems to me very much in the spirit of how this, this part of the story of Esther works there's confidence in the end God wins. In the end, God's victory is, is assured, is guaranteed, and it's guaranteed that evil doesn't win in the end. That's a big picture of you. And at the same time, our prayer is, God, I would like to be a part of what you're up to rather than you having to work in spite of me. And and that seems to be sort of where Mordecai is at. There's this confidence, there will be help one way or another, Esther, but you may be in the position to do something about this. And Mordecai seems to assume she has the responsibility because she has privilege. Mm -hmm. Because she has a platform, she has a responsibility. If she shirks that responsibility, God is still there and God will raise up somebody else. But if she shirks that responsibility, that comes with her privilege, she's wasting what she's been put in that position for. This, This says to me too something about the challenge in our lives about how do we recognize where God's hand is, when we don't get a, a literal blooming voice from heaven or a burning bush telling us what to do, but we just get Mordecai's in our life. Um, and that's tough, because I, I don't know about either of you, but in my life, in the actual lived experience, there have been very few burning bushes and very few voices from heaven, very few even times where there's an earthquake and a whirlwind and a fire and then a still small voice at the mountain, um, like with Elijah, and a lot of just voices around like Mordecai. And sometimes the most they can say is, who knows that you've been put in such a position for such a time as this. Not even, God told me you have to do this, but more like, here's what I think. And that, that's hard. Can, can I ask for, for either of you, what, how do you deal with in your own lives those times when you're praying for a, like, God, what would you have me do when you're looking for discernment and you don't get the crystal clear voice or email from God or note on your pillow and you don't resort to casting lots. I mean, again, that's like that's an option. Clearly, in earlier in the story, how do we know what God wants? I roll the dice, and whatever the dice say, that's what I should do.
1: But how, how do you do the more difficult work of discerning? For me, it's it's about persistence. That when God seems to be trying to move me. God's not going to just tell me once. Okay. That God often tells me again and again and again until I do whatever it is that Mm -hmm. I'm being guided into. Mm -hmm. That it's, you know, and usually those voices that are just like, tell me to like, you know, oh, you should maybe consider doing this. And Mm -hmm. if I just hear that once, that's often not God. Mm -hmm. Like that might just be somebody thinking, oh, hey, yeah, you should become um, a school teacher or whatever. Um, But that God is persistent, and God's nudging me because God is aware that I am stubborn and not listening. Okay,
0: okay. So persistence
1: is a piece of it. So I agree with the persistence. Also for me, like there was
0: something, about a year and a half, two years ago, I had three people tell me the exact same phrases. Mm-hmm. About something that I should eventually pursue in my life, mm-hmm. and that was just like, okay, these three people are not necessarily related to one another. They did not, at least one of them had does not know the other two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, it's that persistence, but also the, the consistency within the persistence. Okay. Yeah, you because know, I am like you. I'm, I'm a little slow. I'm a little stubborn. It took a couple two by fours to the head for me to accept my calling in the ministry. Um, so it, it's just and then sometimes it's just it's hard to explain it's just kind of a gut feeling okay. like you, for me I hear something from somebody I trust and that knows me well and has my best interest in mind okay and those are the important factors like it's not just some random person telling me hey you know but it's somebody that has known me for a while that I trust that, that knows my heart and, and knows God and loves God telling me something and then it just kind of like it just hits that right place and it's like oh you know I never mm-hmm. thought of that or you know like that just oh that helps connect these three pieces that have been floating around in my life for the last you know month like okay like that just kind of that spiritual gut feeling which I know doesn't really help mm-hmm, to explain mm-hmm. it but it, it, you know I don't know any other way to to say that
1: so so I think your piece about ha- um, listening to those voices who you know and trust and know that have your best interests at heart is, is an important fact, uh, important fact. Um, especially because it reminds me of this story from one of my uh, college professors who was telling us about a time when he was in college and he was at a church party. And a girl who he had never met before came up to him and said, God told me that we we're going to get married. And my professor was all like, I've never met you before. I do mm-hmm. not know who you are. Um, and God has not told me that. <laughs> and then he walked away. He's never seen this girl since. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, he had no relationship with this person no. who was trying to tell him something that God was trying trying to yeah. And I mean I have friends
0: who have the spiritual gift of the word of knowledge and they will say things, you know, sometimes to strangers that's you know but they'll say it it's not so much that God told me to tell you, but I feel like God is telling me mm-hmm. to say, you know, and then go and test this and see what you know what comes of it.
1: There is something about that humility, isn't there?
0: <laughs> yes, and I will listen to somebody who has that humility as a stranger before I listen to somebody who just says, oh, God told me to tell you. you Especially
1: know. something as important as marriage.
0: Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> I, um, so, what,
1: yeah. so what about you, Steve?
0: Well, and I, I appreciate both
2: what, what both of you have said. And um, the idea of um, the persistence is important, and that the people that you are taking advice from are people who, you, who whose counsel you trust. And I think that that's important that, like, it doesn't have to be supernatural. It's just who are people who are wise to you and that mm-hmm. you feel like the advice they give is in line with the things that matter to you, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, And and maybe related to that, the people who you know would tell you the truth even when it's not yes. what you want to hear mm-hmm. and also, you know, aren't angling for something that's in their self-interest too, you know? Mm-hmm. Like that, And to me, that often means that it's like the, the times when... Um, it, it feels like I, I get most certain that God is leading me toward the things that I would not have picked. Or like the things that like, because I'm, I'm, I, I just don't trust myself in a lot of ways and feel like the things that I want to be true, like I'm, I'm easy, it's easy for me to sort of, like yeah, this must be what i because it's comfortable and convenient. Um, a lot of my theology has been formed by the TV show The Simpsons. I will uh, confess to you. And there's an episode of The Simpsons where uh, Homer is um, praying for something at his bedside, and he also has a donut beside his bed. And uh, he says, uh, "And dear Lord, if you want me to eat this donut for you, give me no sign." And then he waits about three seconds, and goes, "Thy will be done." and the donut. And like, in so many ways, that feels like. There, there's that temptation. Of like, here's the thing I want, God, and I look for any way to make it... Okay, well, God didn't stop this thing from happening, so it must be what God wants, and I've declared this to be God's will. And yeah. to me, it's much more often like the thing that i got to drag kicking and screaming into, the things that he pulls me out of my comfort zone, the thing that I wouldn't pick on my own, if there's a number of voices like leading me in that direction, and it's clear it's not because it's comfortable for me, okay, maybe i got to listen. Because there's probably things that are I'm doing within God's will or God's direction for me that are coming naturally, that I'm going to do anyway, because that's where, where my predispositions are. Mm-hmm. Great, I get those, those freebies. But the, I'm, I'm especially interested in paying attention when there's something pulling me like, no, oh, this is going to be uncomfortable or difficult, or I don't want to have to do it. And it's the Mordecai kind of voices that aren't just wise, but also say, you got to be courageous. Yep, this is uncomfortable, but you got to do it. Um, that seems important to me. And that seems an important part of why Mordecai's voice is important, that mm-hmm. Esther can listen to him because... She knows he won't pull punches. She knows he's got both her and their whole people's best, you know, interest in mind. Um, and he's been reliable. But I, I appreciate all of you being willing to, to, to share that because this seems to be one of those important contact points in this story is how do we deal with those times in our lives when we're looking for where's God guiding me and it doesn't show up as a, a vision like the prophets get or a, a voice from heaven, but it's, it's people.
0: And that uncomfortableness that you talk about, Steve, like somebody calling you to do something, you're like, I really don't. That's exactly what Mordecai is calling Esther to do. Yeah. Like she realizes that she goes in front of the king when he doesn't call her. She's done. Right. She's not just deposed. Like she's done. Right. 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 And yet, because she trusts Mordecai, because she knows that Mordecai has her best interests and the best interests of their people in mind. She goes with his advice, but not before calling a
1: fast mm-hmm, of you know, mm-hmm. all
0: the Jews throughout um, throughout Susa. At least I don't know if this goes beyond Susa, yeah. but Scripture scripture well, us in Susa.
1: I imagine it would be difficult to get the word beyond Susa, right? Like, so it's probably just easier logistically to say, okay, yeah, it's just the people of Susa, yeah. just the Jews of Susa. Yeah.
2: And so the idea there, I, I think, it's important that that she seems to be ingrained in these spiritual practices, just like Mordecai is, like, mm-hmm. his go-to thought when he's lamenting, his sackcloth and ashes. These practices are part of how he does that, but I don't think anybody expects something magical. I don't think it's yeah. like, oh, if we fast long enough, then we'll be spit. but, like, i got to be clear-headed and, and focused on this, and I want to make sure all the other distractions are out of the picture. And maybe, too, especially in her position, there's a sense of, like, I need to make sure I'm not being pulled by the comfort of having all the royal, lavish food and all that. Like, nope, I'm gonna I'm fasting from all those things, and removing those from the equation is gonna help me get clarity. That, like, oh, I, I can live without having all the, the lavish life. Okay, if, if it means sacrificing, it means losing those things. I'm willing to do it because I gotta do what what basically what God is telling me is the right thing to do. Well,
0: and I and she's. I can picture thinking, I have all these things because they don't know that I'm Jewish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for me to be able to get into the mindset of my people who definitely, if something does not happen, are going to be disposed of, well, I might live because they don't know that I'm Jewish. Right, right, right. I, I need to do this. And then I, I hear with Mordecai, when he tells you for such a time as this, I hear the prophets in him. Oh my goodness, yeah. you know, And how so many of the prophets spoke about how the Jewish nation would eventually come back to Israel. Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, I think Mordecai is steeped into those traditions, into the knowledge of the prophets, to say, you know what, after whether it's through you or somebody else, mm-hmm. the prophets have promised from God that we will return to Israel someday. Sure. We can't do that. If Persia kills all of us, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so yeah. somehow, some way, God's going to make this happen. Yeah, yeah.
2: And what seems interesting to me too, though, is that even though Mordecai and Esther are both clear that these are life and death stakes, that both of them seem to be clear about like our role may be protest, our our role may be persuasion, but neither of them say, "Well, we got to protect our people, so we got to start a violent revolution and kill all the Persians." Uh-huh. But, like. That would have been an option, I suppose, but, like, no, that, that's not the thought. And the thought isn't, hey, Esther, how about you plot and kill the king in the night? You know, I foiled one assassination, and I'll help this one, you kill him. But th- th- that's not the plan. And th- it seems like they're clear, we have to do something, but their, their character or their, their sense of who God is and who they are as God's people bounds what things are on the table for them. They won't say, well, let's start a revolution against, let's go kill Persians to save ourselves, but how are we going to help in the midst of this circumstance? So maybe this is also a point for discernment, too. You you made the point you mentioned that Esther calls for a a fast, and that this is one of those practices, I think we've talked in different ways over episodes uh, over the years in in this podcast, that fasting is one of those spiritual practices that for some is like part of their bread and butter, or lack of bread and butter, (laughs) like part of their, yep, this is part of how I, I see my other people. It's a lot... Uh, it's a lot more foreign or strange, and other people are used to it only as a, uh, in lens, I give up chocolate lens a year kind of a thing, and that can be less helpful as a, as a tool for discernment, but how Esther uses this as a tool for discernment, that I'm not going to be eating, I'm not going to be you know. and I'm asking all of you to pray and fast, and to let that be a way for us to clarify or focus but not magical thinking. If we get 45 people, or 50 people, all fasting, that'll get God to act. It's it's not like that. It's not, if we get enough people to do a religious thing, that moves God to act in a way that God was previously not going to act. But I think it has more to do with getting clarity about how do I listen, how do I discern what God's will is for me.
0: Well, and even before the fast begins, Esther says to Mordecai that, you know, she's going to fast, her maids are going to fast, and after I do that, I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish... I perish.
2: This reminds me of the way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego enter and they get thrown into the fire. Their answer isn't, we're going to go into the fire and we know God will save us. They say, we're not going to do what you say, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow down, and we trust it will be delivered. But even if not, we still won't bow down. Mm -hmm. And it it reminds me too, in Esther's case, certainly in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's case, in Daniel's case, their their acts to save their people or to be true to their convictions are against the law. And, I, again, I, I, don't, I don't want to say that um, you know you're doing God's will if you're breaking the law. I don't think, <laughs> there's a lot of times where doing God's will means keeping the law, not murdering people, not robbing banks. Oh, fantastic examples. But it does say to me there are important times where doing the thing that God wants you to do means breaking what some other human law is. And sometimes folks, it is really easy to say, well, you can't be a good person. you can't be doing the right thing because what you're doing is against the law, as though legality is the same as morality. And stories like Esther, stories like Daniel, stories like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego seem to to be an important minority report voice throughout the scriptures that sometimes what God calls you to do means you'll get labeled not a good citizen, that you're a troublemaker, you're a lawbreaker, that kind of thing, and you have to decide which is more important in that moment. And maybe in our, in our uh, American history, it's worth remembering folks like uh, the John Lewis of the Martin Luther King's the people who did things like you know sitting at segregated lunch counters knowing it was a deliberate and provocative and illegal act, and they were convinced that it was worth doing that because it was about making things better for their people and for, for all of us. Um, but recognizing that, I think it's important to do that. Here, here's the biblical reason or the grounding for that. Sometimes folks like to say, well, the Bible says always follow the rules, and if you're not following the rules, it's a sign that you're a sinner or a troublemaker. And like, mm, here's the whole story that's about someone who knows what she's about to do is illegal and does it anyway because she's convinced it's the right thing to do.
0: Well, it, it might be illegal by the law of the land, but it's also immoral according to God's laws. And so when it comes down to following God's laws, following... Right. The laws of the land. I'm right. going to follow God's laws, even if that means what I'm doing right. is technically illegal, like King and right. other Parks, You know, sitting in places where they weren't supposed to sit. Right. Okay. Um, because it's immoral to treat somebody as less than a person who is right. obviously a human being. Right. So, and I
2: mean, just just naming that I think is important to see that this comes out of the scripture. That like, if, if this this isn't a. Somebody invented this idea that it must be okay to have civil disobedience, but here it is, it's right there in the scriptures, and this is not a side point, this is like the central driving thing of the story, is Esther's realization that doing the right thing means doing something that is, in this instance, not a legal thing. Um, and that it, is, it, became, it became legal in this story to kill all the Jews, and yet that didn't at every point make it okay or moral, you know, that a, a good choice. But it became legal, and there's lots of instances I think where in in world history there's been an important distinction between what was legal and uh, what was what was right. There were times, when obviously, when it was it was legal to own human beings, and it was illegal to help them help slaves escape. It was you know illegal to help Jews hide, go into hiding, and uh, it was um, legal to you know sh- turn your turn up blind eye and let them get taken off to, to the prison camps or to the, the gas chambers. And it's it just a reminder to me. It makes it harder to do discernment, that sometimes sometimes what we're called to do is, is not only uncomfortable or out of our comfort zone, but folks will, will say, oh, you've taken the law. Yeah. So this gets us to the end of chapter 4, and we'll see what, what plays out from here. Um, are, are there any other thoughts you want, you want to make sure we're, we're left with before we close for the day? All right. Well, we'll see what comes out of uh, Esther and Mordecai's plan as we move along with the story next time. But thanks for joining us today here on Crazy Big Talk. See you. All. Bye.